Greetings, and thank you for tuning in to this podcast episode focused on the tapering of opioids entitled Proven Strategies for Optimal Pain Management Outcomes in Special Populations. Our learning objectives for this podcast are, number one, apply individualized recommendations for non-pharmacological and non-opioid treatment options for patients in pain. And number two, identify the strategies for ongoing, safe, and effective use of opioids in patients with chronic pain, including titration, referral, and discontinuation when appropriate. Let me start by sharing a case with you. This is Ms. Joan, who is 66-year-old female with severe right knee osteoarthritis. Significant medical issues prevent her from undergoing a knee arthroplasty. She started physical therapy, but had to stop because of increased pain. And she's using a tibiofemoral brace, a cane, balance training, and also receiving psychological support with cognitive behavioral therapy. Her pain is significantly affecting her quality of life. She's unable to take NSAIDs because of a previous myocardial infarction. Treatment with diclofenac gel did not offer significant pain relief, and duloxetine treatment was associated with significant dry mouth that she disliked. She is now in your office for a follow-up visit, inquiring if there is anything else that could be done for her to control her pain. Let me just share some uh, um, general issues on the prevalence of osteoarthritis in the United States. At this point, it is the most common form of arthritis affecting an estimated 302 million people worldwide. It is now the most common cause of chronic pain and a leading cause of disability in the United States. Guidelines for the treatment of osteoarthritis have non-pharmacological options as the first-line treatment for the management of these patients. And uh, the 2020 American College of Rheumatology guidelines for the management of osteoarthritis strongly recommend the use of exercise, including aquatic exercise, which would have been ideal with Ms. Joan, the use of self-efficacy and self-management programs, but particularly there was a strong recommendation for weight loss, Tai Chi exercises, cane, and the use of a tibiofemoral knee brace. Conditional recommendations included cognitive behavioral therapy, the use of acupuncture, balance training, and yoga. So this is why we have implemented this therapy in Ms. Jones. Unfortunately, this has not been effective and has not provided enough pain relief. So implementation of therapy with uh, non-opioid pharmacological treatments are indicated. And at this point, multimodal therapy is the heart of this type of treatment. That is to say, the synchronous administration of two or more pharmacological agents or approaches, each of them with a distinct mechanism of action. The rationale is that you will be targeting different receptors and pain pathways, so synergism will occur 
allowing for dose reduction of the individual pharmacologic agents, leading to less risk of adverse events and better pain control. Obviously, the choice of the medication, the dose, the route, and the duration of the therapy should be individualized based on characteristics of the patients. So, in this regard, there are also guidelines from the American College of Rheumatology, and they divide them in strong and conditional. Strong recommendations include oral NSAIDs, although that is very controversial, as you will see. Topical NSAIDs are also recommended, and the use of intraarticular steroids. Conditional recommendations included acetaminophen, which is also controversial in light of the evidence that it is no better than placebo, and the use of duloxetine and topical capsaicin. On the other hand, we are lucky to have another set of recommendations from the Osteoarthritis Research Society International. These recommendations are very nice, not only because they have strong and conditional recommendations, but because they divide it according to the comorbidities that the patient may have. So in no comorbidities in patients with GI comorbidities and those with frailty, topical NSAIDs were positioned as strong recommendations in patients with knee osteoarthritis. I, I have to uh, comment on the fact that uh, there was no uh, strong recommendations for patients with cardiovascular comorbidity, and that is because the uh, topical NSAIDs still carry a black box warning based on the fact that studies have not been performed to determine the safety in patients with cardiovascular morbidity. However, I have to mention that absorption of these agents is about 5 to 10%, and uh, the surveillance um, studies from the FDA have not reported an increased incidence of cardiovascular events in patients with cardiovascular disease using these agents. Nevertheless, uh, in these patients, you know, if you are in, uncomfortable utilizing topical NSAIDs, an alternative uh, choice will be the use of intraarticular hyaluronic acid and steroids for the management of these patients. Going back to the NSAID utilization in patients with uh, coronary disease, angina, history of stroke, and those at a greater average risk for these conditions, I have to say that it is a uh, very controversial issue, as it is the utilization of patients with kidney disease, the history of congestive heart failure, and cirrhosis, being that may worsen the clinical condition of the patients. In fact, we know from a dear doctor communication from the FDA issued in 2014 that uh, the risk of thromboembolic phenomenon leading to heart attacks and strokes was seen as early as the first week of utilization and that that risk continued to increase throughout the treatment period. And it was more significant as the doses of these agents increase. So I would warn you in the utilization of these agents in patients with cardiovascular uh, disease history and uh, as well as a history of congestive heart failure.
And to support that statement, I have data here that has been uh, published on the risk of death and the second myocardial infarction associated with subsequent NSAID use. And we know that after one year of treatment, the hazard ratio for death was 1.5 times greater and for a non-fatal MI was 1.3 times greater. After five years, this continued to increase to about 1.63 for death and 1.41 greater risk for non-fatal MI. You may ask if there is a risk of death and second MI after short-term use, that is to say three to five day course, and the answer is yes, based on these studies. And uh, you may also ask, what about patients with a history of a myocardial infarction, but uh, a, uh, without a history of myocardial infarction, but a history of cardiovascular disease? And uh, the answer is yes, there is an increased risk in these patients as well. How about the use of COX-2 inhibitors? The data also shows that uh, the risk is just as high as those randomized to ibuprofen or naproxen treatment in this population. So I will recommend caution despite the recommendation of ACR to use NSAIDs in this population. In the second step of uh, treatment for these patients, we also have recommendations from the American College of Rheumatology and uh, the Osteoarthritis Research Society International. And both of them agreed that duloxetine should conditionally be recommended for knee osteoarthritis and is indicated as second-line treatment as it has been shown to be effective in osteoarthritic pain. Going back to Ms. Joan, I have to tell you that uh, the use of uh, intraticular injections is gaining uh, some strength based on this recommendation and uh, in order to avoid future complications in patients with cardiovascular morbidity. So based on the history of cardiovascular disease and the ORC recommendation, the patient was offered a pain consultation for one of these intraticular injections of hyaluronic acid. However, the patient refused to have an injection and asked if there was another alternative. As a result of that, a trial of opioid therapy was offered. And uh, the question is, what is the data on uh, the use of opioids in osteoarthritic pain? Well, the American College of Rheumatology conditionally recommended tramadol for the treatment of osteoarthritis of the hand, hip, and the knee, whereas ORC stated that the use of oral and transdermal opioids was strongly not recommended in these populations. It is also important to remember the 2022 CDC guidelines on opioid therapy, and they recognize that chronic opioid therapy for non-cancer pain may be appropriate when prescribed judiciously and when patients are effectively monitored. Consequently, one needs to define the most appropriate analgesic regimen for each person in pain, which may include the use of opioids as a component of pain management. In the area of opioid dosing, titration, and tapering, the CDC guidelines recommends that we should always initiate opioid therapy with immediate release 
for short-acting opioid formulations. However, based on FDA recommendations that are in line with the CDC recommendations, an extended release or long-acting opioid medication could be initiated after one week of treatment in a patient who is taking at least 60 morphine milligram equivalents for at least one week. So uh, that is the position of uh, the government in this regard. As far as opiate titration is concerned, I can only recommend that uh, one considers the time to steady state that usually occurs after 48 to 72 hours. This will avoid potential side effects by increasing the doses before steady state is achieved. And of course, special considerations regarding dosing and adverse effects should be implemented in elderly patients, in patients treated with opioids, which are metabolized via the CYP3A4 and the CYP2D6 system, because of the risk that they may be receiving medications that inhibit or compete this metabolizing pathways. Patients with history of pulmonary disease, those taking benzodiazepines or using alcohol are also at risk of respiratory depression. And uh, these medications uh, should be avoided if possible. We'll address alternative options for this population. So which opioid will be the next question uh, in uh, the treatment of Ms. John? And the 22 BA Department of Defense guidelines for opioid therapy in chronic pain states, and I quote, although opioids can improve pain severity and functional status in some patients with musculoskeletal pain, including chronic low back pain and osteoarthritis, the effects are small, are accompanied by adverse events, and are generally believed to be without important benefit on pain or function, end quote. However, I have to say that they recognize that there may be patients for whom, based on a clinical assessment, long-term opioid therapy may be appropriate. And in this regard, they suggest the use of buprenorphine instead of any full mu opioid receptor agonist opioid because of a lower risk of overdose and misuse. And this is because they could not find any evidence that buprenorphine was inferior in, in the terms of treatment of pain and improving functionality in patients with chronic pain. So in terms of uh, drug interactions, I have to remind you on uh, the use of CNS depressants. I mentioned alcohol and benzodiazepines, but there are also sedatives, hypnotics, tranquilizers, and even tricyclic antidepressants. They increase the risk of respiratory depression, profound sedation, coma, or death. And that is also the case of uh, MAO inhibitors, and uh, as I mentioned, drugs that act as inhibitors or inducers of uh, various cytochrome P450 enzymes. So in these populations, the utilization of naloxone and nalmethine is indicated. Naloxone, as you may know, is a competitive mu receptor antagonist used to reverse an opioid overdose. 
it blocks opioid receptor sites, it can reverse all signs of opioid toxicity, albeit for a short period of time, and as a result of that, multiple doses may be necessary. So the corollary of this statement is that emergency medical care must be sought immediately to treat the overdose. The naloxone formulations approved for community administrations and home use are uh, branded as Narcan nasal spray, and they come in a two milligram per 0.1 milliliter and four milligram per 0.1 milliliter single spray solutions. And uh, this is suggested to be administered in one nostril. Now, methane, on the other hand, is also a nasal spray that was approved by the FDA this year, 2023, to treat acute opioid overdose and has the advantage of having a longer half-life than naloxone. All right, another important statement about the use of opioids is not to ignore the risk that uh, opioids can be used by other individuals, either accidentally or purposely, in the household. As a result of that, we recommend that a medication safe be used because it not only deters theft, but also inadvertent ingestion, which could result in overdose and death. The next area that I wanted to cover was opioid efficacy in osteoarthritis of the knee. And there is a Cochrane review of 22 studies with about 8,200 participants that demonstrated small effect size of opioids on pain and function in osteoarthritic patients. In fact, only 30% of the patients improved. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute, this is about a third of the patient's study, that's not that bad. But what about if I told you that 34%, 4% more of patients treated in the placebo group had a positive response? So you're gaining 4% by implementing this type of therapy. Consequently, opioid therapy should always be initiated as a trial with the understanding that therapy will be discontinued if harms outweigh the benefits and or if goals of therapy are not being met. And as a result of that, a periodic review of analgesic effect and functional goals is a must in patient experience. There is also importance of monitoring of these patients as far as uh, this risk evaluation uh, for uh, these patients receiving opioids. And you have two options for uh, a urine drug testing. One is the point of care, which is an immunoassay. It has the great disadvantage that it has a very low sensitivity when testing for semi-synthetic or synthetic opioids. So as a result of that, you have to acquire the set that has the antibodies in order to detect this type of opioids. On the other hand, high-performance liquid chromatography and mass spectrometry have a very, very high sensitivity and specificity. So in using these agents uh, or this test, you have to be aware of metabolic pathways. Keep in mind that coding is metabolized via the 2D6 enzymatic system to morphine. So patients utilizing coding will test positive for morphine and they will test positive for hydromorphone as well, because that is a metabolite of morphine. 
patients using hydrocodone will test positive for hydromorphone. Hydro to hydro. Patients using oxycodone will test positive for oxymorphone. Oxy to oxy. And a very important concept, individuals using heroin uh, will have a, a possibility to have a six monoacetyl morphine detected in their urine, but uh, very unlikely because even that half-life is only half an hour. So these patients would likely test positive for morphine. And the delta sign is that they will have concentrations greater than 15,000 nanograms per milliliter. So keep that in mind because as heroin has a very short half-life, three to five minutes, it will be unlikely that you will find it in the urine. Uh, creatinine evaluation is also important. If creatinine is less than two, this is not consistent with a human uh, sample. And uh, if uh, the individual giving you the sample happen to dilute it with water, creatinine will be less than 20 milligrams per deciliter. Temperature is also important, and it should be between 90 and 100 degrees Fahrenheit within four minutes of uh, sample providing, so that uh, this is another way that you can tell if the sample was brought from water. Now, if the treatment is not effective, and please bear in mind that uh, there is not a definition for how long you should keep the patient on the opiate and at which dose you should escalate this opiate. You are allowed to decide that in your private practice. But the tapering or exit strategy should be implemented after those thresholds are met and uh, appropriate titration has not shown that pain and function has improved. Evidence to support specific tapering rates is limited. I frequently uh, face the question, so how do you go about it? But the CDC says that uh, it can be completed over several months, depending on the starting opioid dose, and should be individualized to avoid withdrawal. They recommend starting with a decrease of 10% of the original dose per week until 30% of the original dose is reached that is to say three weeks, then followed by a weekly decrease again of a 10% of the remaining dose. So that is what they are recommending. It is important to provide a behavioral distress care because that happens during tapering. And if the agreed goal is to discontinue opioid therapy, stopping it when the patient is able to tolerate less than once a day doses typically once uh, every other day, then uh, one can safely try to stop the medication. Extra caution should be used in pregnant patients as withdrawal has been associated with spontaneous abortion and uh, premature labor. So the corollary of an opioid tapering is number one, how are you gonna dispose of these medications? And then how are you gonna treat this patient? And uh, disposal of Unused medications can be done in a household trash by flushing it, but you need to be aware of state laws because they vary from state to state. They vary also according to formulation, pills versus patches. And uh, a safer way to do it is to use local programs that will take back the medication 
or take advantage of the national kickback base. But if you're going to use the home approach, then number one, mix the medicine, do not cross them with unpalatable substances, just like kitty litter or coffee grounds. Place them in the plastic bag, seal that plastic bag, throw it in the household trash, and scratch out any personal information if you choose to use uh, the uh, container that original, originally had the medication. The second corollary is what you're going to do about this patient. And as I mentioned, the ORC guidelines recommend intraarticular hyaluronic acid that uh, may have beneficial effects on pain at and beyond 12 weeks of treatment and more favorable long-term safety profile that uh, corticosteroids administered in the intraarticular space. Nerve block therapy, including radiofrequency ablation of the genicular nerves is FDA approved. Uh, that is a recommendation. Interarticular platelet-rich plasma, PRP, interarticular stem cell therapy, dextrose prolotherapy, investigational disease-modifying osteoarthritic drugs, including methotrexate, and a wide range of nutraceutical products are also evaluating these guidelines, but they are not FDA recommended and certainly not recommended by them, particularly the interarticular stem cell therapy and PRP that were strongly recommended against because the evidence in support of these treatments is of extremely low quality and the formulations themselves have not been standardized. So that is a major problem. Nonetheless, a referral to a pain specialist will be needed in order to determine what is the best way to treat this patient that have failed all forms of therapy, including opiate treatment. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. I thank you for taking the time to learn about optimal pain management outcomes in special populations. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com, that is P-R-I-M-E-D.com, and complete a short post-assessment. If you listened to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming the CME credit agreement. And I thank you for your attention and wish you the best. Thank you.